This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode of Clear Eyes, Full Hearts is dedicated to the memory of college football coach and Friday Night Lights cast member, Mike Leach. Welcome to Clear Eyes, Full Hearts, a podcast presentation of Black Barrel Media and Ritual Productions. This is an episode-by-episode look at the award-winning TV show Friday Night Lights, created by Peter Berg. I'm Stacey Orstano. I play Mindy Collette Riggins. And I'm Derek Phillips, and I played Billy Riggins. Our assumption is that you, our listeners, have already watched the show. But if you haven't already, go watch Friday Night Lights, which is currently streaming on Peacock TV, because there will be spoilers in our podcast. If you want to support our show, subscribe for free to our new YouTube channel where you can find exclusive content. We have a brand new YouTube handle that makes it easy to find us. That's youtube.com slash at Clear Eyes Full Hearts. Also, we're continuing to release new episodes of the podcast every other week. That's right. So join us as we recap all your favorite episodes and chat with amazing guests. And answer your questions. Email us what you want to know at clearizefullheartspod at gmail.com today. We are here talking about season four, episode five, The Sun. It was written by Roland Jones and directed by Allison Liddy Brown. The synopsis from NBC reads, the Taylors rally around Matt as he deals with a family crisis and long suppressed feelings about his father. We're going to have Roland Jones, the Emmy nominated writer of this episode, join us later in the podcast. Right now, we're going to jump into the rewatch. Beginning of the episode, there's a football game happening. I got to be honest, I am having trouble concentrating on football because I guess as the actress and not as an audience member, I know what's coming up. What do you mean? Like, I know the storyline that's happening and this seems unimportant to me. Oh, I get you. I get you. Maybe that's my fault. No, that makes total sense. That totally makes sense because this is a big, heavy episode. With that being said, though, there is one kind of important thing that happens here. But in the scope of what you're talking about, yes, it's, <laughs> it's kind of irrelevant. But here's something that's kind of important is that we notice that Vince, for the first time, has a cannon for an arm. Maybe it means that the Lions might have a new quarterback in the future. We'll have to wait and see. What is Vince playing now? He's kind of playing like a running back. Okay. It's weird. There was a thing called the Wildcat that was going on back around this time. It still pops up occasionally where you'd have multiple running backs in the backfield and a quarterback that was also essentially playing a running back. So they're basically running a Wildcat at this point in time. But in that Wildcat formation, Vince winds up throwing the ball on one of the plays and all of a sudden we realize this guy's got an arm. So I'm sure everyone at home really cares. <laughs> well, listen, I just learned formation. something new because I, I <laughs> didn't know. Speaking of Michael B and Vince... He's getting ready for school, looking for his mom, and he goes and finds his mom outside and just the image of a son picking up his own mother and cradling her like a baby was heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. It's definitely one of those moments on Friday Night Lights where you're just sitting there going, wow. We see a little bit more of what Vince has to deal with when he's home, and it's it's hard to watch. I don't know if I should compare the two, but that's exactly what his character on The Wire did, too. He would wake up, he would make breakfast for his siblings, he would do everything around the household, and it was just a little... I had, like, massive Wire flashbacks. Yeah, for sure. He's a caretaker, that Michael B. But, uh, Becky, 
Becky, Becky, Becky. I love her coming up. I don't know how she keeps finding these phone numbers and why she keeps doing it, but I need her to stop calling Tim Riggins at anything that is not Tim Riggins' phone because it is borderline stalker. <laughs> Poor Madison, because I love Madison, but mm -hmm. they, her character is really kind of annoying in this first part of season four. I know we used to kind of jump down Julie's throat for being annoying. Julie's spectacular now. Now it's Becky. Julie was nothing compared to Becky. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Madison. It's not Madison's fault. It's not Maddie's fault. She gets better. I think she gets better. I know she does because yes. she becomes my love. It's just like, <laughs> oh, she called the Saracens during a wake. Yeah, not good. It's just good. boundaries. I'm a big fan of boundaries and she has none. <laughs> and maybe that's no. not her fault. She grew up in a weird household. I'm going to give her that. Okay. Speaking of this wake, <laughs> I was there during that scene. I don't know if you ever saw me, but I had a big old pregnant belly. So they just sat me down on a couch with a big plate of food in front of me. And I was sort of like, why am I here? But also I wasn't on camera ever. But the McCoys showing up at the wake, I don't remember that happening. So I think we must have been released before that happened. And that was ugly. Yeah, I'm glad Matt slammed the door in their face. They said it's from the boosters. Like, it was so gross. Yeah. I got very excited and screamed at my TV again. And I know I do this a lot because a lot of my friends are here. I didn't know Cedric Neal showed up this early. I thought he became later in the season. Cedric Neal and I have been friends for like 23, 24 years. We sang together. Now he lives in London and he does West End shows. He's in Paris doing 42nd Street right now. So he plays the guy that is showing them about the cars and later he becomes even more of a bad person for Vince. When you are done listening to this episode, if you have a second, Google Cedric Neal, listen to the man sing. It's one of my top three favorite voices in all of ever time ever. I also had the opportunity to hear Cedric sing years ago when they were doing a production of Tommy at Dallas Theater Center. Oh yeah, at Dallas Theater Center with Liz Michael Liz too. Michael was in that production as well. Yeah, who played Smash's mom. So yeah. Yeah, Cedric was Tommy, you guys. His voice is sick. Gracie Bell said in the most adorable voice ever, Hi, mommy, when Tammy walked in. And now that two-year-old has her SAG card. But I wonder if it's just her and not her other two siblings that got their SAG card. <laughs> I don't know, but it did kind of make me angry because it only took me 22 years to get my SAG card. And now mm -hmm. she had it in less than a year on the planet. Mm -hmm. Well done, Gracie Well Bell. done. Good to her. <laughs> Pay those dues, Gracie Bell. That's right. Derek, I would like to ask you, Cobra Mayday? Mm -hmm. What about Cobra and Mayday? What is happening? <laughs> I don't know. I didn't write it. We're going to have Rollin Jones on later. We'll ask him in the course of this episode, which is really heavy, just an opportunity to have a little bit of a lighthearted scene. You have no idea how cold it was when we were shooting that scene. I had thermal underwear on, and I remember Justin Reamer was out there, who was our stunt coordinator, who we've had on the show. And he was making fun of me for wearing thermal underwear. And I was like, dude, I get cold. I'm from Miami. It drops below 40 degrees. I'm putting on thermals. Mm -hmm. Sorry, that's just who I am. We were going to be out there for hours, you know? I mean, even though the, that scene only probably lasted two minutes in the episode, you're probably out there for two, three hours. I do remember Landry saying the Riggins clan is going to take us out. And I was like, oh, wait. And then I'm not a part of the Riggins clan. It's still just you and Tim. Well, I think when the guys are going out drinking, they don't really want the pregnant wife. Yeah, I probably shouldn't be around like throwing footballs either and cold. That's probably a good idea, especially when it's like the Riggins brothers throwing footballs around. Yeah, and drinking beer. Mayday, mayhem could happen, right? I don't know. It's still weird that I was at the funeral, but we'll talk about that later. In this scene with you guys and just all throughout this entire episode, Matt Saracen, and by way of me saying Matt Saracen, I mean Zach Gilford and Rollin Jones are showing how specific grief can be to every person that it happens to. You look at it from the outside and you kind of expect people to feel 
feel sad because they lost someone. But behind that, there are 800 other feelings that come with it from anger to laughter to like grief, whatever it is. And just kudos to Rell and Anzac for this entire episode. Yeah, I'm excited to have Rollin on in a bit and talk to him about some of this stuff. This one is in my gut. Oh, J.D. McCoy. He's back. I don't mean Jeremy Sumter. I don't need Jeremy Sumter to go. I need J.D. McCoy to go away. I'm so sick of it. And now guess what, kid? That is full on assault. You totally hit some person from your car, drive by paintball style. And I got to tell you, I have been hit super up close with a paintball gun. And it was not the most, but up there with one of the more painful things that has happened to me, even more than getting shot with a BB gun, because I'm from Texas and we didn't have a lot else to do besides that. I was maybe like 13 years old. We were like having like a paintball game, me mm-hmm. and a couple of friends. And we all wore masks and everything. And I took my mask off at one <gasps> point because it was fogging up. And I heard pop, pop, pop at the tree that I was like hiding behind. And I stupidly like turned to shoot it where the shots were coming from. No. And my buddy caught me right below my no. eye, about an inch below my eye. My whole entire eye swelled shut. I mean, an inch higher and I'd have been blind, but he caught me right below my eye. And I'm not kidding when I say that my whole entire left eye swelled shut. It was black and blue and it was black and blue on both sides yeah. of my face. And even the other eye kind of swelled shut. And it was like oh three or four God. days of that. And it was bad. You're so I mean, lucky, it looked like though. I got punched in the face by Mike Tyson in his prime. Yeah, very lucky that I didn't lose an eye. So yeah, having been shot with a paintball, all that close range. It hurts. And knowing what that feels like, it pissed me off when I watched this scene because that's just something you don't do. Kudos to Luke for being like, no, this is not my jam. I do not enjoy you people anymore. He's moving on. Brushing it off too and going skins for the rest of the episode. Yeah. I didn't know this was part of the storyline. I think maybe I've been waiting for it, but oh, Becky, 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 Becky. No, 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 no. Don't, don't kiss Tim Riggins. I was really uncomfortable watching it. I'm uncomfortable now thinking about it. I'll be honest with you. I totally forgot that that scene even happened. And it feels really, really weird because they have such a brother-sister relationship. Well, this whole season, it's been brother-sister kind of. I thought so. He's like a big brother. Yeah, it's weird. It's weird. I forgot about that scene. It's weird. And listen, I also kind of maybe get part of it because she doesn't have a relationship with her father. So she sort of thinks any attention from a male is going to be about that and that she doesn't know about friendships yet and whatever. But like, oh, so, so uncomfortable. Yeah, very uncomfortable. Also, I would like to ask what happened to no shoes, no shirt, no service. With Luke Cafferty just walking around that gas station without a shirt on. And why? Like, I get it. You got hit by a paintball, but put your shirt on. How dare you? When I got hit with a paintball, I took my shirt off too for the next four days. You got hit in the eye with paintball and you took your shirt off. Why not? It's an excuse. <laughs> so did I, oddly enough. I walked around topless for like a week. <laughs> and I got hit in the leg. Did she need to see the paintball injury? I Honestly, I don't get it. I don't know. Is it just that we need to know that Luke Cafferty is a certified hottie now so that the girls can swoon over a new kid? Maybe he was cleaning his shirt because he'd had paintball. I'm giving you that and moving on. I'm okay with that answer. I'm going to say it now. I'm going to say it later at the end of this episode. I think Zach Gelford should have been nominated for this episode alone. He is so damn good. Every moment is pure sincerity and pure truth. Not a false moment, not a falter, not in anything. It's grace in action. I adore him. I'm going to have to agree with you on this. I thought that Zach was spectacular in this episode. I mean, he basically carries this whole episode. Oh, it's his. As we said, there's other stories in this episode, but they really seem trifling 
compared to what he's carrying in this episode. I'm thrilled that I had the opportunity as an actor to get to work with him and be a part mm -hmm. of it, even though I'm kind of in the background for a lot of it, but just getting to see him go through this whole entire process. It was also really cool. I mean, I think we'll talk about this a little bit with Rollin as well, but just the way that everyone on set kind of gave him his space in this episode. Absolutely, which I don't know necessarily that we had done before, that something had been given so much weight that everyone, cast and crew, and everyone knew to kind of back off a little bit and give Zach the yeah. space. He didn't ask for it. No. We gave it to him. As we've talked about before, this was a show where people were constantly razzing each other and joking mm -hmm. and having fun and laughing in between takes. And even though there was a lot of heavy stuff on the show before this, there was always a lot of laughter. And mm -hmm. on this episode in particular, I remember every time there was a cut, it was just silence for him so that he could kind of do his thing. Yeah, stay in the space. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's the first time I think that maybe we've done that as a group for the whole episode. I love that Minka Kelly came back just to be at the funeral. She didn't have any lines. She didn't have any stories. She just showed up. I will tell you, there are a lot of actors that would have said no to that, just like time-wise and I'm busy and whatever, but she came. I think if you read the original episode, there was supposed to be other scenes that Minka was in that she unfortunately got cut from just because time constraints and that happened all the time on Friday Night Lights. Plus, there's a big arc that's going to be coming up with Minka in the next couple episodes. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. So I love Minka. I don't think she came back just for this one episode. I'm still just impressed to be soft with in the Minka background. Kelly. Tyra didn't show up. Minka did. Tyra didn't have storyline coming up. I don't think that they asked her. I'm joking. She absolutely was not asked to come back. You guys, Annie no. would have been a heartbeat from there. Neither was Smash, although there is a reference to Smash in this episode. I don't know if you picked that up. Oh, interesting. Coach is laying on the floor playing with Gracie Bell, and he's got a football game on in the background. And they say, and that's Smash Williams. This kid's really having a heck of a year or something along those lines. And it's that. Smash is playing for Texas A&M at that point in time. And I think it might be the last reference we get to Smash. But all we know is that Smash is having a stellar season for Texas A&M at this point in time. And, you know, that's pretty impressive considering he's only a freshman in, in college. Everybody's doing well, except for Matt. Okay, this day, we'll talk about it a little bit later with Roland too, but this day shooting the funeral, I guess he came to our wedding. So I would want to show respect and be at his funeral. It's a small town. We sort of all kind of know everyone. And I have a relationship with Grandma Saracen. So I sort of do get that I was there. This day shooting the funeral is one that sticks with me still. This was what, 14 years ago, 13, 12 years ago, whatever it was. Yeah. Watching Zach Guilford do an acting masterclass in front of us with his speech, talking to the soldiers who were there with us that day doing an actual 21 gun salute. They were huge fans of the show. I forget who found them. I think it was one of our crew members who knew they're actual in the army. They were deploying the next week and they spent that one day with us doing the salute and the folding of the flag and everything was so beautiful. And they were just very cool. And knowing that they were leaving to go do their incredible jobs the next week was something that was also important. That day was so serious. And we talked about it before, like giving Zach the grace that he needed. But also there were times when Zach would go be by himself and gather what he needed. And we would do separate things on our own. And we found moments of just ridiculousness. Telling the story isn't going to make any sense of you and Kitch driving in the trucks. Maybe you had to be there. I don't even remember. Kitch was in his truck in front of us and you were driving behind us. And all we had to do, it was to show that we were coming into the parking lot. So we drove two feet forward and two feet to the left. And Kitch would turn on his turn signal. And then he also put his <laughs> yes, arm out the window and gave yes. us the left hand arm signal that he was turning left in a field. And there was literally nowhere else for him to go. Nowhere but left. to go. Yes. You so, and I yeah. were 
crying laughing. It was so dumb. But also it was hot that day. And so a lot of times we'll go sit in the passenger van to get AC. And while we were in there, Kim Dickens was like, okay, we're playing party trick game. And we were like, what's party trick game? And she was like, you have to show everybody your party trick. Like, what's your party trick? And Kim was, I don't know if she still is. She was a part of an all-girl comedy band. And she sang us one of their ridiculous comedy songs. And you guys already know that Derek is a master of impressions. So we got some impressions and I am hyper flexible and showed that in the van. Luann had another one too, but we all showed our party trick that day. I remember Kim singing while we were in the van, but I can't remember what she was singing. And I remember kind of being like, because Kim was very quiet. Like, very. She's very reserved. Yeah. I know Kim through my friend, Catherine Kendall. And so I had met Kim a couple of times before her time on Friday Night Lights. But Kim is, I don't know, shy is the right word, but she is just very reserved. And then to see her kind of open up in that van, I was like, look at that. Because I'd invited her out numerous times to come hang out with us when we were and in Austin. And it was dirty funny. Yeah. I can't remember exactly what she was singing, but I do remember laughing and thinking, Kim? Yeah. yeah, it was hysterical. And I had my belly in, so I couldn't be super flexible. But I'll show Derek now. I can pull my thumb all the way back. And then I put something on it and I use it as a catapult to throw things across the room. <laughs> it's one of my party tricks. I have a great picture from that day. I think you have it as well, Stacey, mm -hmm. of basically the whole cast. Because it was one of those rare times where we had like all the cast there and everybody was kind of in a scene mm -hmm. together. All in black. I mean, it wasn't everybody, but it was pretty close. But there's also, Taylor pointed this out one time when we were looking at the picture, because it is all of us in black in our chairs and grandma has the flag, but we're all smiling. That's super weird. It's definitely weird. I mean, it's that balance that you have in this business all the time. You're dealing with really, really heavy material and then there's levity outside of it. Like even Zach, the minute he was done and wrapped that scene, he came back with us and joked around and I think felt a little bit of levity that he had gotten through it. So it wasn't like that the yeah. whole time. So yeah, we got to play after. This episode, it's stuck in my gut when we did it. I haven't watched it since we've done it. I had like a flood of memories. This one is important to me. I think it's important yeah. to the audience too. It's definitely one of the more powerful episodes in the history of Friday Night Lights. Mm -hmm. So guys, stick around. We have the man who wrote this episode mm -hmm. joining us next. beyond thrilled to have the insanely talented writer and supervising producer of Friday Night Lights, Rollin Jones, with us on the show today. Rollin is a Pulitzer Prize finalist and three-time Emmy-nominated writer on some of your favorite television shows, including Weeds, United States of Tara, Boardwalk Empire, Smash, Life in Pieces, oh. Anne Rice's Interview with a Vampire, and my favorite show. Cut, 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 what? cut, cut, cut already. Just throw all my IMDb herpes at me, like to cry it out loud. Like, these are the, good things. You these don't, are not, oh, just a but, guy. Just a, I wrote that, and then now I'm doing okay. the vampire show. Done. There you go. All right. So let me ask you this. You graduated from Yale School of Drama in 2004, if I'm not mistaken. Sure. But your play, The Intelligent Design of Jenny Chow, for which you were nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, had its premiere at South Coast Repertory Theater in 2003. How did that all come about? Ah, well, I was making terrible decisions in my 20s and, uh, you know, wasn't, wasn't looking good. And uh, I was like, oh, maybe I should go back to grad school and figure out a trade. And I got lucky to get into that school. And I wrote that play, you know, to the comma, you know, the first year I was there. And we did the first performance in like a 50 seat classroom. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was in the right place. And somebody made a call who knew a place and a person. And, you know, and they, that person worked at South Coast Rep and South Coast Rep said, hey, 
let's what, let's why not? We have not done a flying Android play in a couple of years uh, at least, and so yeah, they did it. I got really lucky in that play. It was set in the, the same sort of neighborhood that my first TV gig was set in Weeds. It was sort of like mm-hmm. in the little suburbs of Los Angeles, and yeah, that got me back to LA. Nominated while you were still in school, I think you know, like I might have written it a year or two before it made it out to like the professional world where when it was there. But that was, I mean, I'm sitting on something like I hadn't written anything for like two or three years. I was like, you know, an executive assistant for somebody in yeah. New York while I was like helping direct operas in July. It was weird. It's a weird saying, time. Yeah. But look, you no and Jeremy O'Harris, man. No, no one won that year because we all stunk. So they decided wow. literally not to give it out. They do this to drama all the time where they <laughs> literally like hear the nomination. They go, none of you deserve it. And there's so, one thing I love about everyone in what? our businesses is that we're all so like self-flagellating constantly. It's like, I mean, you've accomplished some amazing things. I have written in one a, of the in, best flying Android plays that's ever been written. There you listen, go. Listen, it's been said. Yeah, it's okay. been said before. Listen, Aaron Tivet was the only actor nominated for best actor in a musical in that whole crazy pandemic year. And there was still a chance that he might not win the Tony. He did, but it would have been hysterical if he didn't because he yeah. was the only one nominated. The Pulitzer Committee is no notorious for i think they've done it to drama something like 12 times they've never done it That's to a novel so never, petty. It, well no it's just it's, it's the nature of like what plays look like on a paper you know like they're yeah. like what is this because they're not made to be they're like instructions for seen. a thing that's yeah. Like, yeah and so yeah. you know they look at that and i mean there's a nice little club i got like a bunch of emails the next day about a bunch of playwrights who have also been nominated and no one got it that year too it's like a dirty you guys, you dirty guys get robes <laughs> actually somebody who's in my current show eric bogosian same thing his was nominated and no one got anything that year because the pulitzer club's like yeah they're yeah uh, oh not not God. worth it. Yeah, you know, it's crazy. Badge of honor. So, how quickly after your Pulitzer nomination did you you're wind not, up getting weeds? Weeds is like what? It's like 2005 or something like that. I mean, it's like a yeah. year out of grad school. Like I did like an NEA grant thing, and then Genji said, "Pack it up, kid. Come, you're gonna write for the lady drug dealer." Pretty quick though. I mean, there's a lot of. I, I mean, yeah, obviously, I like you've been out of two years old. I was like an I old man it. by then. I was like the fossilized dinosaur of graduate <laughs> school. Old man Jones. Yeah, I just need to get my SHIT to. Together. I yeah, yeah, yeah. Total luck. And, and then and you came on board Friday Night Lights in season four. Right. So I so, did four years of weeds. And then I mm-hmm. wandered around Los Angeles for six months without a gig. We've been talking for 14 minutes. I had to said a damn thing about doing it. Haven't talked about Friday Night Lights, but that's my yeah. next question. Next oh, okay, question. Sure. That's my next question. All right. So you got Friday Night Lights. You came on board season four. How familiar were you with the show at that point in time when oh. you were approached? No, I mean, I, I knew that they were looking for writers. So I went back to, here you are, young people. This is what happened. I went down and got some DVDs and started uh, banging those out in like four days. It was like every day my gal would get up and do her dance to the theme song every time. We just we just bang them, bang them, bang them. And I was, yeah, I mean, it felt like the, the closest thing to like Thornton Wilder on TV. It was really nice mm-hmm. that we were writing about people in the middle of the country. Everything's always about the coasts. And there was like a real sincere, I mean, it was like a romantic version of the middle of the country, but it was yeah. very consistent in the voice. And you had all these actors that were a couple of them clearly like built for that role, put on planet earth to play that thing. The relationships were really clear and they were doing a real fundamental reboot on yeah. what was going on. So it was like dreamy. And I just went in and I told 
Tatum's was like, I'll eat from a dog dish to work on this show. Yeah, then I got hired. And <laughs> I'm sort of, I think, famous for like one of my first pitches on day one, which I think later on, I don't know, I think it might have been Bridget Carpenter, maybe it was Harry Aaron, who tagged me the AIDS tornado. <laughs> I would come in with the darkest pitch possible and it would just be, and she said, it was like a tornado of AIDS. That's what she said. Like, here, here it comes, folks. But I had said, you know, I said that we hadn't dealt with like one thing after watching three seasons of it, that you hadn't dealt with mortality in mm-hmm. the show. <laughs> So the first thing I said, I was like, let's do crib death. Crib <laughs> death? Like uh, Gracie there. I was oh, like, let's, no. see, let's see what really? happens. I know. That was like, I think, day one. Of you it. are dark, to be you fair. You are. Though. That is a tornado of AIDS. Yeah. Jason Kidd, like, I literally had to repeat it twice. He's like, what? What you, I'm sure he just went, who did I hire? What is this? Well, get him out of here. Yeah. But it actually ended up, I think we're talking about the son today. That's it literally, yes. I said, let's kill the baby. And then it basically, they were like, well, who could we kill on the show? And they gave us Matt Saracen's dad, you know, like. Wait, the guy who's not like, even here, but yeah. we'll deal with the after effects. Yeah, How yeah, close yeah, were yeah. Stacy and I to being on the chopping block? And no, no, no. You guys, were, you guys were there. Really fast. This is actually a question for me. And I think maybe some of our listeners, what is a supervising producer? It's nothing. It's crap. So this is what you're going to see all these t- the co-producer, producer, supervisor. Uh, executive producer, supervisor. All it is is just Consulting. code for how much they're paying you as a writer. How many years you've been in the dumb business and all that stuff is. Jason <laughs> like Tatum's put us in on Olympic and Bundy and told us to pretend we were in South Texas for a year. That's all it was. We didn't go on set. I mean, I did. I actually flew myself out there because I wanted to see how the hell you were shooting 63 pages in five days. I just like, yeah, yeah that's how we there? met you. Nuts. But for the most part, I think he likes to keep everybody sort of editors at it, writers write, actors act, directors direct. So you supervised uh, yourself. Did I even do that? Apparently not. But just honestly, folks, that is just the scourge of the Writers Guild. I apologize to every American <laughs> viewer watching TV. They're just, generally speaking, names for writers. That's all. Taking the curtain down. Okay, on a know. different level, we've discussed privately, I remember back in the day, you, me, Stacy, and Michael B. Jordan had gone out for drinks one night, mm-hmm. and we had talked about The Wire and how much of a fan you were of The Wire. All right, so we're with world-famous... Yeah, world-famous famous actor Michael B. Jordan, Jordan and yeah. all of us were talking about The Wire one night, and I remember you and I, we were all big fans of the show. So I wanted to ask you how much influence The Wire actually had on you when you're, I mean, you're brought in as a writer to kind of create this new world, which is East Dillon. So how much of The Wire was an influence on you on those backstories for characters like Vince and Vince's mom and yeah, exactly. I mean, I think what most people should know is that writers of my generation and multiple rooms, whether you were in a half hour comedy or a drama, The Wire was one of like three shows that is constantly sort of talked about and is wildly influential about the freeing of, hey, you got to write about these same six characters all the time. Like that you can just, you can build a world and until somebody's dead, they're really out there walking around. And the other thing that was really, I think, helpful for this show and that show is that there is a level of you think it's supposed to be like ripped from the street or that like Friday Night Lights is about a bunch of people leaning on barns trying to articulate shit, you know? But what you're kind of groping for all the time is lyricism and poetry and The Wire gets away with it all the time. You think, oh, that's why they talk. You're like, go watch those shows. There's nothing about that that's actually authentic. You know, you got a, like a drug dealer who's like whistling the cheese stands alone and people are throwing drugs out the window. You're like, what are you yeah. talking about? But they were so confident in what they did. But that's sort of what you were always trying to do for Dylan, you know, the football show that's not about football, right? And you're trying to like find these sort of moments of Midwestern Sherwood Anderson, like grotesque moments of inarticulate lyricism. So you're really actually trying to write to struggle towards poetry. It was less about the, you know, racial makeup of these people, because I think there were 
stories from The Wire that you were doing the same thing for all the characters in Dylan. The fun part about, you know, writing Michael B. Jordan is like, well, he was new, right? And so instead of writing the 250th scene of the Reagan's family, you're suddenly <laughs> writing the first or the 15th yeah. story. And, you know, there's some freedom there. I actually wanted to talk to you about, about this specific episode, The Sun. This is the first episode we're introduced to Ornette on paper. Yes. But he isn't actually in the actual episode. <laughs> so yeah. you created this character. And then did we actually ever even shoot scenes? No, you did. We had the, like Kadams was, was like trying to go to the mat for a supersized version of the sun. He, you know, Kadams, I again wasn't there for most of the shooting of it. Mm-hmm. But when it came in, he's like, dude, it's like 64 minutes and it's great. I don't want to touch a thing about it. And so he was like, I think he had what was like direct TV at the time, right? I think he was trying yeah. to get them to get off their 43 minute, but you know, commercials go here and all of that. And, and he gave it up. Somewhere out there, there is a 60 something minute version of this. Mm-hmm. So Ornette is on paper. And I think probably for the actor who was playing that boy i'm sure he would have loved that opening seat to like oh, set the sure. set who he was and so i mean that was always the thing with friday night lights cadence believed in these 55 60 page scripts that he would whittle down and so i'm sure as you know some characters kind of got through what, what happened to that person and where did they go they were all written folks they were on paper they were things um, Ornette? it's his dad it's his dad yeah, yeah. oh Chris. <laughs> yeah so for what season five, Buddy Garrity's son breaks his ankle, right? We had a whole yeah. story for him. Like, he couldn't do the story. We had to rewrite everything because he yeah, broke his ankle. Yeah, you blamed it on Billy Riggins. <laughs> Yeah, Wait, right. it's your fault? No, I, I mean, he tore Rollin, his... Rollin, he... I have not watched Friday Night Lights. This is my first time watching the show. It's very Stacey good. has no clue what's going on. <laughs> Season five, though, yes. So th- there's a scene, well, not even a scene, like he wound up tearing his Achilles ACL, tendon. Yeah. Oh, is it the story? So- the story, as was conceived in the writer's room, was Buddy Garrity's kid is going to play on the team, and that mm-hmm. kid was going to get concussed and concussed and concussed. Ooh. And Buddy was going to have to like remove him. Like Whoa. that was the real story. And then, like the first football scene, I think the actor was doing the he celebration. He didn't even do anything. He was yeah, literally yeah. on the sidelines, and he pow. Yeah, so it was like a gunshot going yeah. off. So yeah. instead of that storyline, it's just oh, we'll make Billy Riggins do a haka, and that'll be what tears. <laughs> oh yeah, that's not right. true, Bill. You that was that wasn't going to be touched. That wasn't going to be touched. It was very. Exciting. Oh god, that's I love said. that concuss storyline though. Oh yeah, it would have been something, but Man. you know what can you do? Well, the other thing is too, we knew when it was season four, we were going to do back to back. We were picked up for two seasons. You know, the pressure that I was trying to bring to the thing was like, hey, you can screw up Dylan as much as you want in season for because yeah, you can have season five to restore it. it. There was a couple people in the writer's room who were really pitching for a very different ending to season four than we ended up with. But, you know, I mean, that's sort of where the rubber meets the road, right? I do think that Kadams can see very romantically and very beautifully and kindness sort of is a weapon. And I really have come, having worked on so many other shows, to respect that vision that he had and the kind of way he ran his writer's room and ran that show. I have a massive respect for Jason. But yeah, no, I wanted Coach to have a big drinking problem and I wanted that to end in a riot. <laughs> end of four there wasn't going to be a magical landry field goal or something they were just going to get robbed and that was just going to be the towns in flames and he had a whole season to like you know heal it but you know this is why it's not the wire it's probably not like oh my god but to me this is fascinating because it really does show that there are all these different kind of ideas and voices in a writer's room it's all beneficial and there's got to be somebody at the top kind of going okay you're taking in some of these ideas and then other ones you're going all right maybe not maybe not and it was a murderer's row i mean yeah Carrie Aaron is in there. Bridget Carpenter is in that room. Ron Fitzgerald's in that room. Madison and Zinman, Aethan Franco, Monica Belaski. All of these people have run shows now. 
yeah. they're all showrunners and they yeah. were all one little happy staff at Olympic and Bundy with Oliver Stone two rooms away. I'd always see him in the bathroom. We'd always oh be next to each other. That's um, a but, question I have for you though. I mean, like when you've got all those different personalities and all, the, I mean, all these super talented writers and creators, how do you not let ego get in the way in there? I mean, did you guys have some knockdown drag out fights at times? No. And you can see it in the show. Yeah. It was a room full of kind people. I don't think Jason was attracted to anybody who's kind of come in and, you know, you flamethrow and you drop suitcase bombs for story, mm -hmm. but there's a number of ways to do it. And yeah. I think he was great to have a variety of writers in there. I mean, look, I think when I was in there, the heart of the show was Carrie Aaron because Jason at the time was also doing Parenthood. So he's back and yeah. forth in the room. And because we had this order to do four and five, we were sometimes, you know, splitting up the rooms. Half the room was going here working on this episode. That's how the sun got made. The sun got mm -hmm. made with only half the staff. We were in wow. one room and they're either building episode four or six somewhere else. And we're in two separate ways because what do we had to crank out 26 episodes in a calendar year? It was, yeah. it was insane now that I was, I just spent two years working on seven episodes. It's wow. just like, yeah, no, no, I, it was filled with kindness and a lot of jocularity. Like one of the great things that Bridget Carpenter used to come in like once a week and she'd say, let me tell you about the movie I just read. And she would perform a mini version of the movie by herself. Her rendition <laughs> of Nicolas Cage's Knowing, the movie Knowing, is one of the five funniest things I've ever seen in my entire Stop life. Stop it. Like, I need no. to see that. You could walk in and you'd be like, oh, it's a Monday. What do I know about football in West Texas? I don't know anything. And then Bridget would whip out her Nicolas Cage impression. And God, we I were. love Bridget Carpenter. Uh, so since essentially you were talking death and you wanted somebody to die, so say that you guys broke story. Was yeah. it sort of just a given that you were then going to take that episode? Like the sun was yours? It was my first episode that I wrote for Friday Night Lights. And I got to kill my father and bury my mother personally, mm -hmm. you know, for me. That's where I could mm -hmm. like, oh yeah. And I was like, yeah, I'm taking this one. I want it. Mm -hmm. So I let it be known that I wanted it. But it was still... I think between Carrie and Jason about who did what, but mm -hmm. I just, you know, I think that was the first one that I got up on my feet and I pitched out the whole episode to Jason and yeah, for whatever reason I had an Avenue and I was ready to kind of like, just grab a little bit of stuff that had happened to me in my life. And just, it just worked out that way. So let's let Aton Franco take this episode for crying out loud. This is my Emmy nominee. That's what I was going to say. This is the episode that you were nominated for. It's one of my all-time favorite Friday Night Lights episodes. And there's specifically a moment in this episode where Matt has a conversation with an army recruiter who tells mm -hmm. him that the other soldiers used to talk about how funny Matt's father was. As an audience member, we never saw that side of Matt's father. It's a gut-wrenching scene when we realize that this stranger actually knew Henry Saracen better than his own son mm -hmm. did. Yeah. In my opinion, it's just a beautiful piece of writing and it takes us in a direction as an audience that we were totally not expecting to go. I'd just like to hear you talk about that episode, that moment, and how mm -hmm. you came up with that idea because it really is a very creative take on this scene because he's not only having to deal with the death of his father, but this reconciliation of who his father actually was. This yeah. man that he's burying that's actually a complete and total stranger to him. Well, that's the hard work, right? Mm -hmm. In like 45 minutes, how do you tell a character who has only sort of partially been seen? And the character you're talking about, that military guy, he didn't even know him that well. They just told him yeah. what the story was. Like, and he's yeah. like, I had to come around and make you feel good about the stuff. And the hard work in four and five was, you know, Jason made a real clear decision, like in those first five weeks about who we were sticking with and who, because if you graduate, you should go on. And that's, you know, in these yeah. high school shows, stay with it. And, yeah. you know, some people 
faded and some people grabbed on. So we're trying to tell these stories, not on the team, but also like the people who are still living, you know, and outside. So she's off to college, she's going to art school. And then, you know, instead of the juggle, it's like, let's just for the most part do Saracen. Again, the supersized version, there's a bunch of stuff with Vince. There's some stuff that was there for Coach Taylor that yep. got cut out about him calling his dad for the first time and like... <gasps> what? The episode is supposed to end with him calling his father and yeah. him saying, hey, dad. Yeah. And, and it was... That's the first Eric and I have talked about how much we want to know that relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the brutal cut of these things when you, get, you got to get from 63 to like 43 minutes. The idea was to just to try to take this one more about small town as opposed mm-hmm. to the adrenaline of the team. When the cut finally sort of, you know, made its way out, it was clear like, oh, it's just going to get out of the way. For the most part, let it be Matt. There's a couple of breaths yeah. here and there for JD and for Vince. But for the most part, be with it and be with the people that are trying to rally. What do you what do you say? Right. What do you do? Everyone who encounters him is having some version of the awkward, how do I be the best person I can be, right, around this person. And so the guys are taking him out drinking and Julie's trying to find a way in and Tammy's, you know, cussing out people at the the funeral home and all the awkwardness that kind of revolves around somebody dying, right? Nobody's prepared for it. It comes out of nowhere. You have to put on whatever is going on in your life. You got to put it aside and suddenly become crisis friend. And that ends up being not helpful yeah. half the time, yeah. right? And so, yeah, I think that's all we're doing. So I, I think I was pulling personally from my mom's death. I remember my brother getting super wasted because he couldn't deal with it. And just everybody has a different way to kind of deal with death. It reminded me a lot of my own grandfather's passing away because, you know, obviously I had this wonderful relationship with my grandfather, but it was one-sided, not one-sided. I only knew that man from the fact that he was my grandfather. I was his grandson. I didn't know him in a professional setting. I didn't know him and who he was around his friends. So in that sense, it was a one-sided relationship. And being at his funeral, all these guys came up to me and were like, you know, your grandfather was a wonderful guy. Your grandfather was my attorney for 30 years. He never raised his rates, blah, 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 blah. Your grandfather bailed me. All these stories from all these people. And I'm like, I mean, look, he was my grandfather. I loved him. I had a lot of respect for him. But then I'm hearing from all these other people who my grandfather was. I didn't really know my grandfather, you know? I knew my grandfather as my grandfather. I didn't know him as a friend. So there's this whole other side of Henry Saracen that Matt knew nothing about. I don't know. I thought it was a really lovely way to go about telling this story. I remember I ran into Zach at a local restaurant one time mm-hmm. and you know, I was like, hey, dude, I wrote that thing. He's like, oh, hey. But he was talking about like the delivery of the script out to everybody in Austin. And he said everybody was really, really respectful. Suddenly everything changed and like people yeah. got out of his way and gave him some space and said, oh, he's going to be not in the same place. He's going to need a little more. I just thought that was so indicative about what was going on on the ground with the crew and with y'all. We'll never forget. We talk about it all the time because for some reason, Mindy and Billy were at the funeral and he was doing that speech and there were airplanes flying over all the time. And Zach just being Zach and so professional, he'd be so in the moment and then he'd pause And everyone sat completely still and just waited for the airplane to go over. And then he'd start right over in that exact same emotional place that he was in. And everyone was giving the grace to just be in that moment and let him have that moment. And it was when before we would probably joke around and like horse around them, but it was like, absolutely. But it was like, this is Zach's space and give him all of the grace. I mean, lovely. And and, you know, the idea, I think, you know, Kadem's remember, I think he said (laughs) something about watching everybody just assembled at the funeral. He's like, oh my God. I don't think we've ever had everybody in one frame like that before. No, and that was really interesting for all of us. We have a group picture from that moment. And it's like, I think this may be the only time that like this 
big of a group of all of us. And even Minka Kelly was there. And I know that Minka, Minka. had some storyline in that episode that got cut as well. And Grandma Saracen in the picture has the folded yeah. up flag on mm-hmm. her lap. And it's like, oof. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. it really is one of those moments too, where I think as an actor, you got these guys giving a 21 gun salute and they're really firing. And they you're really there, were. And it's overwhelming. Those guys were about to ship off too. They it's were shipped kin- off like yeah. in two mm-hmm. days after they were shooting with us. It's a kinesthetic response. You're sitting there and it's the environment really dictating how you feel in that moment. So it felt very ominous. You're in a cemetery. You're not on the back lot of some studio. You're in a cemetery. There should be some respect given to the people that are buried there. And so, yeah, I think that's one of the benefits of Friday Night Lights is everything was shot on location. So as an actor, you were in the space. You know? Yeah, no turnarounds, folks. No turnarounds. That's the only way they could do the 63 pages. They're shooting yeah. two cameras this way and that way, and then they got a third camera that literally can't be used except for two seconds, and they're usually like covering it like a dented paint can or something like that with the lights. Mm-hmm. It's pretty remarkable. On the fly, yeah, grab it and go. question I do have for you, though. I mean, as an actor, obviously, we had a lot more freedom on Friday Night Lights than we did on a lot of different shows, or on pretty much any show that I've ever worked on. We had a lot of freedom to improv. I've said this before on the show, and I will make this abundantly clear again. We never, ever, as actors, changed story or came up with story or created story. But there were times where we just didn't say a line, or we would sometimes improv something on the day because something popped up that was a little bit different. As a writer, though, does that drive you nuts? No, it's beautiful. It's it's lovely. I think it's lovely. I think you're always trying to find spontaneity back in shows. These things go through all sorts of process, network notes, blah, 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 clearances, all these weird sort of things come in that are obstacles before they're like delivered to the actors and then put in front of a camera. You got guys with big old guts and, you know, and their tool belts right off the the other side and try that the actors can kind of disappear and go into that. I think it's great. And I think the nature of these people that were out there trying to find a conversational tone, you can go mad trying to put out how many ums and uhs and blah, blah, blah. Oh my God, ellipses and commas. Yeah, and what do out, I do? Get out of the way. Like, it's an actor's <laughs> medium. No one's there to hear your writing, for crying out loud. Like, they're there for the, the actors. And so trying to play truthfulness. I hadn't looked at the script in like a decade or more. And I looked at it, I was like, oh, I kind of remember, I think it was better when they did that. I was like, there were times when just the actor's instincts are just way better. That's the nature of a collaborative art. You're in love with your writing, go be a novelist or a poet or something. You're writing for actors. They have things in their body. You can try to fake it at your laptop, but actors, especially actors who have been doing these parts for that long, they know what they're doing. Get out of the way. There are times though, I'll be honest with you, even on this episode in particular, like you had just sent me the script right before we recorded this podcast right now. And I was skimming through the script and I remember this scene where we were out on the football field and it's Billy and Billy's coming up with this idea. He's going to give Matt a nickname and he's going to nickname him Cobra. And I remember reading that and loving that. And then when we actually shot it, it was like, it didn't come out the way that I wanted it to. Because I kept saying stuff and like everyone was denying me and I'm like, guys, come on. (laughs) Play with me. First rule of improv. First rule of improv. You you got to accept. Yes, and. So there are times where it doesn't turn out the way you want it to. And I'm not even the writer. And I'm like, dude, I thought it was better on paper. You yeah. Know? That goes back and forth. In the end, it is the product that gets sent out to America and the rest of the world. By the way, huge in France. Do you know this? Uh, like, I didn't know that. No. Yeah, there's like some crazy rabid, they just think the world of it. A couple of times in interviews, they're like, I need to tell you something about it. Like, well, Coach Taylor, all this, and they just like stop everything. Very strange. You guys should do some research. You're big in France. <laughs> we, need to, uh, we need to get those French podcasts, man. <laughs> no, I mean, like, there's like, it's like, there's there's people done like long, like college doctorate thesis on the snapshot of America that 
I love like, it. Uh, the Sarbonne is accepting papers on Friday Night Lights. Oh. It's not really. No, I mean, I think the, somebody that I met would. wrote the doctorate thesis on Friday Night Lights. There is a class at TCU yeah. that David Hudgens, Michael Waxman, and I Dodge. went to. They literally have a class where they teach Friday Night Lights mm-hmm. and basically go through it. And just, it's a, a you know who class. else spoke at that class, Derek? A little man named Stephen Sondheim, who uh, was a giant Friday Night Lights fan. I don't know if I know Stephen Sondheim. What's his I'm name? Gonna I'm going to punch kidding. you in the face. Okay. He wore a lot of brown. That's all I can tell you. He loved brown suits, folks. Every time you meet him in New York, brown, 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 a lot of brown. All right. So my last question for you here is obviously your experience on Friday Night Lights is very different than mine and Stacy's because you were in Los Angeles most of the time, as we discussed. How would you say that Friday Night Lights changed your life? And do you have a favorite moment from working on the show? Well, I mean, the coolest part about it is that there's like little strands from that writer's room that continue to my, in my life to this very day. I am sitting in a room right now writing season two of Interview with a Vampire. And down the hall, literally like four offices down, is a person named Shane Munson, who was last year's writer's assistant. This year, she's on staff. That is the daughter of Perry Aaron. Um, <laughs> Steve Hanna, who was the greatest writer's assistant in the entire pre-living world, wrote for me and Ron Fitzgerald on Perry Mason. He's working on something with, who's that Boston crime writer? Dennis Lehane. He's doing a show with Dennis Lehane right now. And I'm still very good friends with Terry. Patrick Massett, every three years, yeah. calls me up. So let's go to see Tom Petty. Oh, Tom Petty's dead yeah. now. Occasionally we'll text with Monica. Just some long-term relationships that were born and bred in that room. And then out of the room, because guys, I want you to know so how many times the three of us plus a bit more of our crew have done karaoke together? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, used to back in the so day. Stacey's got pipes, folks. Stacey's got pipes. Stacey um, pipes. My favorite, look, The Sun is beloved or whatever is not my favorite episode that I wrote for the show. Right? You guys, he sent us in an email. He said, this is my second favorite episode I've ever yeah. written. So if you ever get to it, I'll Can I guess what your favorite one is? Easily, easily. Because it was your, one of your, your greatest episodes. Kingdom, not a doubt. For what that thing is supposed to be, you know, it's just what it is. That I thought was my best script that I wrote. I love for. it. Kingdom is an amazing episode, but it's another one of those where, I mean, this is part of the love and the hatred that I have for Friday Night Lights is that, as you said, episodes would come in at 65 pages long, 65 minutes, and you got to cut 15 minutes from that episode. Yeah. And there was always stuff that wound up getting cut. Yeah, It was so much fun, so brilliance. I mean, we had a pillow fight, if I'm not mistaken, uh, like me and Buddy Garrity. Or no, it's not a pillow fight. We all wake up drunk in the same hotel room together. Yeah, you guys were off on the road. And it? that whole scene got cut. Man. But there was all kinds of stuff like that. But it was like every episode, there was stuff that got cut. Like sometimes it was your stuff. Sometimes it was other people's stuff. That's one of the things they, about they, Friday There Lights really should be a, like a show called like Bodies in the Wheat Fields. And it's just all the scenes that got the literally yeah. the two seasons worth of stuff that's on a cutting room floor for this show. Oh, those characters that you thought disappeared. They didn't disappear. They just died in editing. They were there. <laughs> Hard choices had to be made all over the place. So yeah, it's just the nature of the beast. That is something that's a little different though nowadays, I think, because a lot of shows that you're working on probably don't have to adhere to a 45 minute standard anymore. If it's 60 minutes, it's 60 minutes. You'd think that. No, I think that there's yeah. still, anything that have to be on linear cable or any that they still have some ceilings. But sometimes that was a really good discipline, right? You know, yeah. even just yeah. just writing to commercial breaks sometimes would just give you some muscularity that you wouldn't necessarily have. 
have. I yeah. mean, look, I mean, how many of those shows on HBO, God bless them, and their marketing department, all that, that seem a little flabby here and there, you know? Like, yeah. so. Oh, I've always said that there's a little bit of freedom in some limitation, you know? And giving yeah. you like an act one, an act two, and an act three makes a little sense. Who knows? Sometimes there are things that should be two acts and they feel like two acts and they throw weird, you know, breaks in to sell some vacuum cleaners and some peas or what it is. But there's less of that now. But that doesn't mean that you can't tell a really vibrant story in 43 minutes. There's a lot of jobs he took because you got to pay some bills and things like that. I worked one full calendar year on two seasons of that show. And I have about as much fondness for my experience there as anything that I've worked on. And look, it's a really tough task, right? Because there's a, a pretty terrific movie made. And then there is a piece of nonfiction that, I mean, I don't know, other than In Cold Blood is probably one yeah. of the greatest snapshots. It's one of the best pieces of nonfiction writing that's ever been done in this country. That book is yeah. astonishing. And the fact that for whatever three iterations of this thing managed to be something special and something uniquely their own, whether it's Kadams or Reiner or whoever's in charge of what was going on, you can just smell these shows that the actors love being on and are going to be really, it's really so sad good to when hear. It's over We with. say that all the time with our actors about how like from the top down, from Pete Berg to Kadams to Reiner to whatever, that it made everyone so happy. But to hear it from the writers who we didn't like, you guys were in another city, but that that even spilled over to you makes me so happy. You guys had very clear relationships and very clear wants mm -hmm. and needs. And Kadem's had that little dust of, again, it's really about kindness and thoughtfulness that a lot of times in writers' rooms, people just don't think can be dramatic. I don't know. He had a very, very nice balance of all that. And he picked good people. It was like, there's not one lot of assholes and a lot of divas around the Jason Kadem show. And that just feels yeah. like the way to do it. Well, I mean, it's the age old saying with the fish stinks from the head down. And I can honestly say like on Friday Night Lights, it was like there just wasn't, at least from the acting standpoint, from my experience, we didn't have that guy. We didn't have that person who was- There was no stinky fish? egomaniac. Mm. There was no stinky fish. There was no well, stinky I, fish. I think we just stumbled on a podcast episode title, didn't we? Can you do no that? Stinky stinky fish? Fish? No, no stinky fish? No stinky fish. No stinky fish. Or we could talk about the shows we worked on where there was a stinky yeah, fish. Yeah, that was funny. <laughs> That's a different podcast. Just, That's yeah, the one she... that Rollin wants to work on. Let's talk about the stinky fish. Folks, there's this IMDb <laughs> page. You can go on it. Everybody has it. There, Your chlamydia is there for everybody to see. <laughs> You are on some shows that you're like, wow, what, what was I doing there? Yeah. yeah, it doesn't mean that the people were bad or whatever. It's just no. circumstances, something collide and things get put on your television set that should never have been made. We can talk gay vampires now. We can't. I, wanted, I still haven't watched it. I got to watch the interview with the Derek, vampire. Now. It's so good. It's a little bit like Friday Night. We have very good actors on that show. And expectations where you're like, oh, I'm going to watch the vampire show. And then this weird arty thing came so through the door. Stylized. Right? Well, I know you guys so have been getting stylized. like great reviews and everybody's singing your praises. So yeah. I'll tell you what the Venn diagram I know from Friday Night Lights and Vampire are. It is a feel first show. It is the feels yeah. are most important. Not trying to outthink anybody. And you know, it's weird. They suck blood. I still find that super weird. But the vampires on our show feel intensely as mm -hmm. people in Friday Lights felt intensely. Also, you know. the Venn diagram of just really, really good looking guys, too. Yeah, I'm not super excited about how attractive my cast is. I'm all for <laughs> ugly people, but <laughs> thank you. What can you do? What can you do? Well, let's talk about Kingdom. I like that one better. It's almost a comedy, right? It's mostly, for the most part, a rocking little comedy. Right, right, my um, favorite scene from Kingdom that got cut, they I've hired this guy who it. was brilliant who was the hotel clerk when we oh, were yeah. checking out he just had like four or five lines yeah. and there's a line in there where coach is looking at the tab and he goes there's something on here like legs 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 or something like that oh no and coach I'll send, goes look i'll send you my script too i'll send you a kingdom yeah. script or whatever but yeah but no, coach we'll, says something along the lines of like what what is this movie legs 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 i didn't order that and i go i ordered that oh god <laughs> 
And coach is like, what? And I go, I'm like, I got it. Don't worry. And I go to put my credit card down and they run the credit card. My credit card doesn't work. And coach winds up having to pay for Billy's point. Oh, God. And it's just a brilliant moment. But there's all kinds of moments like that. And that got cut. It's just one of those things that like, you know, what's the story for podcast uh, listeners? This was Derek Phillips' finest hour. And a lot it of was. it did not make it. I get very excited about putting your ass out there with the team. And yeah, we had a lot of fun on that one. Oh, that was also the episode. We shot a scene. See, this is the actor's side of it. We were shooting this moment where, not shooting, as I said, we were on this bus shooting for hours and hours. At one point, everybody's like, dude, I gotta pee. We're in the middle of nowhere on like Highway 6 in Austin. And so they literally just had us all walk outside and we all were like standing in a line peeing together, the whole entire team. And we had no clue that the cameras were rolling. Ah. And I jokingly pulled my pants all the way down to my ankles. And it's a very, very quick shot. Yeah. Can't do that on TV anymore, folks. No. Can't get that kind of exclusive footage. Not allowed. The whole team is like peeing on the side of the road. I'm actually smoking a cigarette at that point in time. We never established that Billy smoked. And you can see my cigarette in my left hand and my pants down around my ankles because I just thought it'd be funny. Like, these guys don't know me. You know, what if I'm the guy who always pees with his pants all the way down to his ankles? (laughs) Yeah. I I try to do that in public restrooms on a regular basis. I think about all the things off. that also, you know, didn't make it the script, but were so passionately argued in the writer's room. Like Landry really wasn't supposed to be a kicker. He should have been a punter. That's what he should have been. Don't you have like a monologue about like what happens when special teams comes on yes, or whatever? Yeah, I believe yeah. that's kingdom. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a kingdom, right? We're just, yeah. And you couldn't get it past Patrick Massa. It's like, this is how it goes. Football stuff, you had to go through Patrick to get to Jason. Yeah. And if Patrick wasn't down, he's like, punting's boring. There's nothing about it. I'm like, no punting or whatever. It's like, no, punting is existential. You're lonely. Nobody cares about you, whatever it yeah. is. And all you can do is fail. And I thought it was perfect Landry thing. What was it? It was going to be like, he was like reading Bartleby the Scribner. And it's like, I prefer not to. At some point he like <laughs> had a little moment where he didn't want to punt and he would get tackled and coach was going to be furious. But I don't, I don't know. Yeah, but Billy stuff. got to have his monologue with special teams. He says he get the special teams. teams, more like special ed, I believe is <laughs> yeah, what he yeah. says. Yeah, I guess uh, he says nobody cares about you. that anymore. Anyway, yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. Well, you know. A snapshot of the early aughts. Earlier time. Very different time. I probably love the Rigginses. And we're super tired of writing about your your breath. So it was very exciting in season five. And we were like, finally, those two. (laughs) They were super entertaining. Then we named your kid after Steve Hanna. Is that why he's Steve Hannibal? Little Steve, look, Steve, by the way, is the secret weapon. If you guys have not been talking about Steve Hanna, Steve Hanna was, all those people that were talking about the writer's room, he was the guy who kind of not only sculpted it, because he could just, you could just type and hear everybody's like pitches, mm-hmm. but he would spend the next three hours sculpting it. Friday Night Lights, when you went off the script, you had this ridiculous, beautiful outline with four or five choices for every scene. And mm-hmm. it was the most organized, lovely thing. And it's because he had a great story head in his mind, like he knew what to put in and what not to put in. And Steve Hanna, folks, deserves his own special Friday Night Lights podcast because he literally saw it all, knows it all, knew every agenda in the room and could probably tell you a more truthful version of the writer's room than anybody else. And that's why the baby was named after him. This is why we brought you on here did, because mm, these are things we would never know. know. We would Bridget know. Carpenter does a mean Nicolas Cage. That's the other Bridget thing. Carpenter does a mean Nicolas Cage and Steve right. Hanna is the brains behind Friday Night Lights. And, and the think, name and for think, um, Hannibal Reagan. Yeah, and I think Carrie Aaron's called me an age tornado. <laughs> guys that is it for season four episode five but please join us next time for season four episode six entitled stay but until then clear eyes full eyes clear
Clear Eyes, Full Hearts is a podcast presentation of Black Barrel Media and Ritual Productions. Executive producers are Stacey Oristano and Derek Phillips, Chris and Mindy Wimmer for Black Barrel Media, and Steve Walters for Ritual Productions. Our producer is Miranda Parham. Send your questions to Pod at gmail.com. And follow us on social media. I'm on Instagram at Stacey Orstano. And I'm also on Instagram at underscore Derek Phillips. Check us out on YouTube and blackbarrelmedia.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.